Acts of the Apostles, we've been discovering, really, it's the Acts of our God uh, through the Apostles. And uh, we're in chapter 28 and going to begin reading at verse 11. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day, we came to Putioli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul himself was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that you would anoint uh, your servant as a frail creature as he brings your word, that uh, your spirit would quicken this to our hearts. We want to grow. We want to honor you. We want to uh, find your encouragement and and uh, the oil of healing and whatever it is that you desire your word to bring into the lives of your people. And so we pray for your presence with us as we continue to worship. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when I th think of Washington, B.C., a lot of times I think of this as being one of the seven leverage points that Satan has captured in our nation. Let me list those leverage points off for you. The church, civil government, arts and entertainment, education, business and technology, media, and the family. And the church ought to be interested in absolutely every one of those leverage points. Somebody's going to capture them, and it really should be the Lord Jesus Christ who wants every square inch of planet Earth under his feet. But what's been happening is that systematically the church has found its influence eroding. Probably it's more accurate to say the church has been pulling back from the influence of Christ in all uh, of those areas. And that's true even of the family. The family in America is falling apart. The church is losing uh, the next generation. Now you don't need to remember all of those seven leverage points of society, but for today... Uh, I want you to realize that we cannot ignore uh, the leverage point of the civil government. We cannot ignore Washington, D.C. or our state capitals. And uh, Washington, D.C. needs our prayers desperately because it's not just a command center for flesh and blood. I believe it's a command center for spiritual principalities and powers that have captured our nation. And if you just think about it, I think you'll find in your mind all kinds of examples that say, aha, uh -huh, I can understand why so much insanity, you know, is coming from that place and why so many people who go to that, uh, that city, maybe with good principles initially, almost right away begin to be captured and taken over and enter into various vices. I was reading... Uh, not too long ago about the testimony, and this was for the homosexual community, but the testimony of two conservative uh, uh, congressmen who were opposed to the uh, sodomite agenda, and yet within a few weeks of getting there had become sodomites themselves. And they had not even given much thought to it before, but there was incessant temptation when they got there. 
this it, place that's just swarming, swarming with demons. They are entering into the dragon's lair, and they don't have a clue of the spiritual dangers that they're taking on. This is one of the reasons why the Bible says... Uh, he who rules must be just, ruling in the fear of God. You've got to be a Christian. You've got to have the protection that a Christian has to be able to survive uh, in the dragon's lair. So I'm very encouraged when I see various ministries uh, that are beginning to take seriously the need to reach out to, to these kinds of people. This past week I got a, a letter from Ralph Drolinger, who's not only famous in the NBA in the past, but he heads up Capital Ministry. This is a wonderful guy. Anytime I've talked to him, I'm looking up like this. He is huge, but he has got such a sweet, soft heart, and he has got a passion to see rulers coming to Christ and being discipled. And what he's done is he's set up uh, this capital ministries. He's trying to do it in every state capital. The, the, the guy that we have as a chaplain in Nebraska is a, a friend of mine, Perry Gauthier, doing a wonderful job. And by the way, if you guys are looking for somebody to finance, I know there's all kinds of things to finance. He definitely could use uh, some finances. But anyway, back to Ralph Drolinger. Uh, his passion is to get really a, 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 a toehold in Washington, D.C., to begin discipling, evangelizing and discipling some of these people so that they can become strong in the Lord. And he's also uh, tried to set up 20 chaplains in 20 different uh, capitals in South American countries as well. He's got an incredible vision. I think this is the first time this has ever been done. But to me, it's so gratifying to see people who are willing to go right into these kinds of power centers and uh, seek to capture those leverage points for Christ. Well, that's exactly what Paul desired to do for many years. Long before he was captured uh, in Jerusalem, his heart's desire, and we've seen this earlier in the book, his heart's desire was to go to Rome. He wanted to go right into the dragon's lair and begin preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, finally, he's arrived, and he's so excited. Even though he's arriving as a prisoner, this has really been his dream to be able to minister right within uh, this, uh, this capital of the Roman Empire. And as we're going to see toward the end of the book, this coming uh, was the fulfillment of uh, Daniel chapter 2, which speaks of the fourth world empire Rome beginning to crumble to the gospel of Jesus Christ and from there to see that kingdom growing and growing until finally it becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. And we'll look at that a little bit more in a later sermon. Let's um, take a look at four things here. Plans, places, people, and prison. Begin at verse 11. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. Now, I see three significant things in this verse. The timing of the wintering, the presence of the ship, and the name of that ship. We'll look at the timing first of all. They were winter-bound for three months, which, as we saw last week, enabled Paul to have plenty of time to evangelize, and history tells us, to make Malta a Christian nation. The entire island uh, was uh, converted by the preaching of Paul. In fact, we saw that the leaders there, uh, history tells us, invited him to another island. And he preached right near there, uh, near Malta in that island as well. So it was not wasted time. Three months of wintering. And no matter where he had ended up in the Mediterranean, he'd have to be parked for three months. Now we saw in chapter 27 and verse 12 that the plans of the ship were to, uh, to winter 
800 miles directly east of Malta in the island of Crete. They wanted to go to Phoenix, uh, Crete. I think that's the farthest they thought they could possibly make it. They were really pushing the envelope when they decided to go out of Fairhavens, and of course they got in trouble uh, doing that. And uh, it would have been okay to travel there, but God had other plans. He had the plans for the conversion of Malta, and we've been looking at the hair-raising storm, the zigzagging travel all over the Mediterranean until they finally land on that island. But if you look at your map, you're going to see that this storm blew them way ahead of schedule. Okay, If they had started from Crete on February 8th, which is the first date uh, that you could possibly safely start sailing again, okay, they would be quite a bit further behind schedule than uh, starting off from Malta. And so God overruled plans to His glory. Now think, too, of the presence of the ship in Malta. If there had been no ship anchored in Malta, they would have had to wait around for who knows how long. It could have been maybe another you know, several weeks, maybe a month or two. And if it hadn't been an Alexandrian ship, we, we saw before, none of the other ships were big enough to carry his huge crew of prisoners. If it hadn't been an Alexandrian ship, that may have slowed them down considerably too because the centurion had to go with all of these prisoners. So there's a lot of details God's got to be working out and juggling in the process. And to me, this is encouraging. All the way through Acts, you see... Romans 8.28 is not just true of the apostle. Romans 8.28 is true of every one of you. God orchestrates these details. So we've got two timing issues in chapter 27 and 28. In the beginning of chapter 27, God slows down the ship enormously. And the reason he slows it down is so that Paul, uh, they have to hug the coastline. They have to stop every once in a while so that Paul can minister in the ports all the way up the coast of Syria, Cilicia, Pamphylia, and Lycia. He would not have gotten into any of those ports to preach the gospel if the wind had not been against them, frustrating their plans. And so we've got a wonderful God who uses slowdowns for the purpose of ministry. Then, of course, we had the storm to prepare a boat to receive the gospel and also to convert the island of Malta. That was a total overturning of plans, wasn't it? They weren't planning on going there at all. But God said, no, we're going to do away those plans. We're going to give totally new plans for you. But the storm also sped them up so that Paul could start his ministry in Rome much more quickly. So you've got slowed down plans, you've got spoiled plans, and you've got plans that seem too rushed, and yet we can trust God in every one of those. Yet what do we do? I think many times we get frustrated in every one of those uh, situations. When the plans get uh, slowed down, we get really uh, frustrated uh, because we're really not stewards, you know, to say, Lord can take away, the Lord can give. I, I just want to be faithful to the Lord. When He spoils our plans, ah, we get really frustrated. When He slows them down, uh, we get uh, uh, worried as well. And when he starts rushing our plans, we get worried. doesn't matter what, what happens to our plans. Sometimes we seem to get worried about them. And part of it is because we're not looking in faith to the future. We're not looking with expectation. Okay, Lord, what are you doing here? I want to be on board with what you're doing uh, in these uh, plans. If there's any lesson that's been repeated over and over again in this book, it is the lesson that we can trust God's providential hindrances as well as His providential prosperings. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have longings. 
and desires and just, oh, Lord, I really want this plan to be achieved. Perfectly appropriate. In fact, if you flip one page forward to Romans chapter 1, I want to read verses 8 through verse 15, and you'll see that Paul had his plans frustrated, but he never gave up. He just kept pressing into them. Uh, Beginning at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. And he still was hindered after this, too, after he wrote this book, because this was written uh, quite a bit earlier, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles." I am a debtor both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as it is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So even the Apostle Paul had plans that were spoiled and or slowed down. You know what? It's extremely difficult to maintain a balance of aggressively pursuing your plans but graciously submitting to God's dealings with those plans. Now, if you take an attitude, well, who cares? You don't have Paul's balance because he cared a great deal. He cared a lot. Now, some people say, who cares? I think in part because they don't want to get hurt. If I care too much about these plans and then they get dashed, I might get hurt. And yet what I would encourage you to, to, to do is to have the passion of Paul. When God put plans upon your heart, they may get stalled. They may get stopped. They may get diverted. It's okay to be passionate. Paul was passionate about the plans that he, uh, he had been burdened with. Others give up at the least resistance thinking, hey, I don't want to fight against God. If God's stopping these things, okay, I'll give up. Now, in one sense, it's a good attitude, but in another sense, it really is not. Uh, they interpret every providence as God saying no and God trying to get them out of the boxing ring. Little do they realize he's the coach, the boxing coach, and he's keeping them, he wants them to get back into that ring and to keep on fighting. God is your boxing coach, as it were. He is not against you. He is for you. And if you get frustrated and bitter and angry with God... What you're doing is forgetting about the fact... You're acting like God is your boxing opponent. He's the one who's knocking you down and and failing to realize, no, he's the coach and you can continue to pursue things realizing God is behind you. He is for you. He loves you. He's going to give you everything that you need to move forward. He doesn't want you giving up. He doesn't want you hitting your head against the wall. Paul rolled with the punches, so to speak, but he always got up swinging again. And he did that because he knew that his boxing coach was for him, loved him, and would do everything uh, that he needed uh, to, to move forward. Now, that did not mean that Paul did not get bloodied. We've seen Paul got bloodied a number of times in this book. And even on this, uh, this uh, last storm, he lost everything. And I'm sure with all of the, the, the terror of that storm and working their tails off, trying to get the, 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 the boat on course and haul, throwing stuff overboard. He probably had bloodied hands. 
so we're not saying Paul did not get bloodied. But how we relate to God when God spoils our plans, slows them down, or makes us feel like things are going too fast will make a big difference on whether you can be joyful in every situation. And I think we really need to think uh, about this. God is not your boxing opponent. Okay? He's for you. He is not against you. So there was the timing. There was the providential presence of the Alexandrian ship. And then thirdly, there was the name of this ship. Luke said that the figurehead was the twin brothers. Here's what the New American Commentary says. Ships often carried the figurehead of these two gods who were Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus and Leda. They were venerated as the protectors of seamen. So here's the beautiful irony. Paul is traveling on one of the dragon's own ships to invade the dragon's lair. (laughs) It's a wonderful irony that Luke puts together here. He's using the very means and plans that Satan has set up to put people into bondage in order to free people from uh, bondage into the liberty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God does that over and over again down through history. One of the fascinating things you can do when you're studying history is just look for the ways in which Satan's plans have been frustrated. You know, from the Tower of Babel on, you can see all kinds of examples. In the book of Esther, what's Satan's plans? You can see his plans were to destroy the people of Israel. And Haman looks like he's going to be successful, but he ends up getting hung on his own gallows. And so I love the irony of Paul traveling on this ship, totally devoted to Roman gods, dedicated to Roman gods, in order to be a part of the process of conquering Rome by the gospel. Hallelujah! You know, what a Savior! It's uh, just a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so here's my admonition. Instead of cowering when you see those ships dedicated to humanism and other satanic uh, forms out there, instead of cowering, what you ought to do is say, okay, I know God can use even those ships to knock Satan down a peg or two. I'm not going to get frustrated. I'm not going to lose faith. We've got a God who is bigger than Satan. Amen? Amen. Now let's look at the next Uh, Next, at the places that Paul was traveling past on his trip to Rome. Verse 12 says, And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. Now, we aren't told why they stayed there, but uh, most commentators assume it had to have been bad weather or repair for the ship or something like that because uh, this centurion would not, according to Roman law, would not have had the luxury of just any time he wanted saying, eh, let's take three days off. He had to account for every stage along the way, why it took so long, what happened, what days were you... He had a log. He had to report on. And so commentators say that there is some kind of a necessity here, necessity here like weather, ship unloading, ship repair, or something like that. But let me tell you something. God was in that stop at Syracuse. He was there. Uh, if you read the history of the church in that uh, particular city... Uh, they will tell you that uh, the, the centurion let Paul off the boat. He preached during that time, won a small number of people to Christ, which formed the nucleus for a, a new church. And by the time this book was written by Luke, there was an established church there that would have rejoiced at these words that Luke was writing. They would have realized, this is not an accident. God brought these contrary winds to bring the gospel right to their doorstep. Uh, you, you see, if the savor of Christ is about you everywhere you go, your pit stops 
You know, along the way on a trip, your restaurant stops, all of the places you go can be providential opportunities that uh, God is setting up for you. And we just need to begin asking God, give me eyes, Lord, to see what you're doing. You're in this place. I know you are. Help me to see what it is you want me to do. Verse 13 says, From there we circled around and reached Regium. Now this circling around is assumed by commentators to be tacking against a northwest wind. And I just want to briefly comment that God has constructed history in such a way that you've got to be responsible. You've got to act. Yes, He controls all things for His glory, but He does it in a way where there is a genuine free agency that we must engage in. And so if these guys were to get anywhere with this northwest wind, they would have to creatively tack back and forth, but they'd be going way out into the bay, if you look on the map, and circling around and back down into uh, Regium. So don't think that circuitous routes that are maybe not pleasant don't have God's hand in them. And on the other hand, don't think just because God controls all things that we do not have to be creative and think outside the box and brainstorm and be responsible. We've got to do both. Verse 13 continues. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Putioli. Now, earlier it was a northwest wind, and with the northwest wind blowing, there was no way they could make it through that narrow channel because it would it'd just beat them into one side or the other of, uh, 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 of the shorelines there. And so they had to wait, but after a one-day wait, they get a south wind, which is just perfect for taking them through there. And it must have been a pretty fast south wind because they travel a good long way. Uh, so this uh, takes just another day for them to get all the way up to Putioli. Putioli was the drop-off place for passengers, and then the grain was going to go on further up north. Now, just as a side note, Putioli was 12 miles due west of Mount Vesuvius and about 13 miles due west of Pompeii. Now, if you've uh, read any archaeology, any of the uh, stories about Pompeii, you knew that in another 19 years, Mount Vesuvius is going to blow up and it's going to absolutely kill everybody in Pompeii and the regions right around there. And uh, just as a side note, I think it's interesting that uh, we, we need to realize who died in Pompeii. Uh, God had his justice on a number of actual magistrates but the people who died were the people Paul had to contend with in the previous chapter, Felix and his wife, and Herod Agrippa and his wife. And they're all smoked in that, uh, in that city. So God has the last word on the, 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 the events of the, these two chapters. Now, there's one other side note that I would like to mention, and that is that Paul was not there, okay, when the mountain blew. God could have made the mountain blow right at this time. But you know what? Until it is your time to go, it is impossible for you to die and to be graduated to heaven. I'm looking forward to graduating to heaven. But until your per God's purposes for you are finished, you cannot have that happen to you. I love the way the ESV translates Acts 13.36. It says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He couldn't die until he had served God's purpose for him in his own generation. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. God's got a purpose for every one of your lives. And uh, you cannot 
uh, die until God's purpose for you is done. Well, for that matter, I don't think I want to live one day longer than I have a purpose in God's plan. Uh, I'm content just to fulfill God's purpose. And everywhere Paul went, that was his desire. Every place he went was to fulfill God's purpose. Next, I want to look at the people that God encouraged Paul with as he went into the dragon's lair. Verse 14 says, Where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. Now, how encouraging was that to find brethren way out in the middle of nowhere? Who would have expected this? I mean, he's not given any uh, missionary journeys here, and none of the other apostles apparently have gone there at this point. How in the world did the gospel get there? Well, apparently, some of the people who were won to Christ by the preaching at Pentecost, they went all over the world, and they began preaching themselves. And so that's how it it happened. But for some reason, the centurion lets Paul and the other Christians on board this ship go into the homes of these brothers and uh, have fellowship with them. We have no idea why they were allowed to do this. Uh, one, One author said, well, maybe he had government business. He had to report as soon as he gets to Italy and government works just as slowly back then as it works today. That was his suggestion. We, uh, seven days, that's a long time to wait in one place. And yet here he has such a splendid opportunity to minister in these people's lives. And uh, pagans, I think, sometimes marvel when two Christians can meet and they instantly strike up a friendship, you know, and, and a relationship. And how, how can you do that so quickly? It's because God's Spirit resides within us. He's drawing his people together. Unless we're resisting it, you're going to have fellowship with God's people. And so here's my admonition to you. When you've got big battles, you need some people around you. Ordinarily, God doesn't just send us out as gladiators. He sends us out as an army. And we're here, you know, to support you and encourage you and lift you up and bless you and and, uh, nurse your wounds on occasion. You know, we need to act as a body. Uh, Pride can sometimes get in the way of getting ministered to. And yet Paul, I think, is a wonderful example here. He not only takes the admonition seriously, bear your own burdens, but he takes the admonition seriously that others need to bear your burdens too. We've got to do both. <clears throat> he ministered. He was also ministered too. The text continues. And so we went toward Rome. Now the distance is about 130 miles. Take uh, five days to walk that. Luke goes on to say, and from there, that is from Rome... When the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, this was Paul's triumphal entry into Rome. Now, it's true, there were generals prior to Paul who came down this Appian way, and they received far more applause, far more numbers came out to greet them. But Paul, when he saw this genuine expression of love, I think he was deeply touched in his heart. The brothers had gone all the way to Appian Forum. They had traveled 43 miles from Rome to meet him. And then there was another group of brothers, uh, some commentators say perhaps it was from another church in Rome, who had traveled 33 miles to three taverns. Now, either way, that's quite a trek, but it was their way of honoring Paul. Apparently, some word must have uh, been sent out when he was in Puteoli. People say, hey, Paul's coming, and, and uh, then people wanted to come out and, and greet him. Now, I want to just consider the contrast between the tepid reception that Paul got in Jerusalem 
and this glorious reception that he's getting in Rome. Let's just think about that for a moment because here's excited Christians. They're expending a great deal of time, a great deal of effort to escort Paul into Rome, to meet him, to encourage him. Three lessons. First, the boldness of these Christians to identify with Paul's chains. They really didn't care that the soldiers might, you know, cast a, an eye, a jaundiced eye at them and wonder what they were about. Hey, are you guys identified with this prisoner here? You know, it could be a scary thing for a, a Roman soldier to say that. They didn't care. They didn't care what the thousands of people who were traveling on that Appian Way might think of them. These guys are hanging around criminals. Uh, what's wrong with them? I know this guy, you know. And uh, not Paul, but knew the people that were coming out to greet him. And so they were bold for Christ as we need to be. They were not ashamed of Paul's chains. Now, if you read Philippians, you will find that earlier Paul said in Caesarea there were Jews who were ashamed of Paul's chains. They, they were just like, ooh, man, I don't know if I should associate with him. I might get in trouble too. And so we see quite a contrast between these Roman Christians and the people in Jerusalem. So that's the first lesson, a willingness to identify with God's people even when it's stressful to do so, even when they're in trouble with the law, even when maybe they've got a bad reputation, you know, that's preceded them. Second lesson I learned from these words is that these brothers went out of their way to bless and honor uh, this leader. And this has almost been completely lost in America. People don't know how to honor their leaders. Uh, not even within the church do they know how to do that. Uh, it's so easy to take uh, leaders for granted or to even tear them down. And you can think of the kind of vitriol and spite that's been heaped upon some of the famous leaders in America. Uh, people like R.C. Sproul Sr., R.C. Sproul Jr., John MacArthur, Mark Driscoll, uh, Doug Phillips, R.J. Rushdooney, Peter Hammond. Now, you can understand unbelievers doing it, but these guys are being attacked uh, by believers. And we have got to be ever so careful that we are not throwing spite at Christian leaders that we may be disagree with over dispensationalism and charismatic movement or Arminianism or something like that. Correct them, yes. Paul was always correcting people, but he always found things to praise them for. He was for people. And we need to make sure that we are for Christian leaders as well. Now, this is a two-way street. Uh, scripture, yes, calls wives and children to honor their, uh, their, their, their husbands and their fathers, but it calls the husbands to honor their wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, it, scripture calls Christians to honor their leaders, but it calls Christian leaders to honor the brotherhood. Romans 12.10, 1 Peter 2.17. And I think Paul was a tremendous example of this. It didn't matter how messed up those churches were. And you read about some of those churches. They were pretty messed up. Read about Corinth. And yet read through those epistles and look at all of the ways that Paul praised them. He was constantly, even when he corrected them, he was constantly looking for things in their lives that were good that he could praise and that he could encourage and bless them with. And I think we need to, we really need to have that kind of an attitude. It makes my heart ache when I see Christians tearing each other down rather than building up. It doesn't take much effort to write a blog, you know, to utter some words that tear down a leader, but those leaders, there's no way that they can defend themselves against the thousands of attacks. It's impossible. Uh, they can't restore their ruined reputations. And so what a blessing it would be if instead of criticizing 
we wrote a check to somebody that we disagreed with who was a Christian leader, and we said, you know what? I'm sure you've been going through a lot of uh, discouraging times. We want to bless you. Now, we, we've sought to do that ourselves. Our church has recently sponsored a, a conference with a dear brother in the Lord who is the speaker, who is a Lutheran dispensationalist who disagrees with us on at least a couple of the five points of Calvinism. People say, horrors, you're letting him teach, <laughs> you know, in your, in your conference. And we say, yeah, this guy has so much good to share with us. We hold so much in common with him. And let me tell you something. This brother teaches in almost all of the so-called judgmental reconstructionist conferences that are out there. He's everywhere, uh, those, those reconstructionist conferences. They love him, even though they know there's so many disagreements. Do we talk about these disagreements? Yeah, we do. We have friendly banter back and forth. But this gentleman loves coming to our conferences. We love having him at our conferences because he's got the attitude of these Roman Christians. Now, if the whole body of Christ could have the attitude of these Roman Christians, I think we would be incredible testimony to the world. What kind of love would there be? Incredible testimony. Okay, pray that that would happen. Third lesson I see from these verses is the incredible encouragement that the presence of brothers in each other's lives can really be. The text says, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, I wouldn't doubt if tears came to his eyes and he got all choked up when he saw these delegations coming uh, because, you know, he's probably emotionally in some ways a hurting man, and his heart must have been failing him because it says here he took courage. What does that imply? It implies he was, had lost courage. His heart was failing him earlier. Even strong men like Paul need encouragement. And while a note of encouragement can be a wonderful thing, and I thank uh, you, some of you have been such an encouragement in my life with the, the notes that you have sent, personal presence is even more encouraging. And this is one of the things I love about this church. It loves to hang out together. I, I love it. It just blesses my heart when I see you guys going to each other's homes, coming to my home, or hanging out for a couple hours after the service here until the security guards have to boot you out. I mean, that's a sign of good community, right? And so I love the, the kind of encouragement, blessing that you guys are in each other's lives. Now here's, and, and so I'm saying you guys really are more like what's going on with the Roman Christians than you are what's going on with the Jerusalem Christians. But for every one of us, there is this temptation to do like the, some of the uh, Christian Jews did in, in, in Judea. They focused on the little differences that they had with Paul. Just slight differences. But those differences were so much their focus that they felt distanced from Paul. We've already looked at that uh, in the past. And you know what Paul did? He just loved on them anyway. And that's all we can do. You know, when people criticize us, you can't do anything but just love on them, continue to be faithful. But my admonition is that we imitate these Christians who sacrifice time and effort to come out of Rome to bless Paul. I think they're wonderful examples of being for each other. Okay, the last P in this passage is prison. Verse 16. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what happened to the centurion. 
or Aristarchus or the other Christians. Uh, we do know Aristarchus didn't die. Okay, he's still, and some of the other Christians that came with Paul, they escaped right along with Paul. But we're not told 100% what some of these guys um, had happened to them. We, we saw that probably most of this ship, if not all of this ship, became converted. They're on their way to the Colosseum to die, right? So I'm sure there's some tearful goodbyes. There's some encouragement that Paul is trying to bring into the lives of these people as they face an uncertain future. It appears that the centurion himself had been rather fond of Paul, but now Paul loses all of that. He's got a brand new soldier to guard him and all kinds of new people that he's going to be ministering to in the next uh, two years. But I find Paul's prison treatment to be very encouraging. It's clear that Paul is getting preferential treatment, right? None of the other, none of the other prisoners got the kind of treatment he got. And God is setting Paul up in a place where he is going to be able to beautifully reach out to tens of thousands of people over the next two years. Even though technically he's a prisoner, it's just house arrest. He, he probably doesn't even have chains on his wrist. Uh, unless you believe Philippians and uh, Colossians were written at this time. I believe they were written during Caesarea. But he had a great deal of liberty to entertain, to preach, to disciple, to do an incredible ministry. In fact, later on when the Jews come, and some of the Jews are pretty feisty, they can't persecute him. Why? Because he's being protected by the Romans. This is an ideal, perfect forum for reaching out in Rome. And so in one sense, it really isn't a prison. It's true, he's um, going to be limited. He's not going to be able to leave the house. But he's got all the liberty he needs in God's providence to do what needs to be done to see Rome crumbling to the gospel. So we see a whole new set of P's, a new plan for Paul, a new place, a whole new set of people. And this is the way God works in our lives during difficult times. In fact, sometimes it's the difficulties themselves that usher us up into these new P's of God's presence. So in one sense, it's not a prison. I couldn't think of a, a very helpful house term that begins with a P. So I was trying to alliterate today, but... Paul is still a prisoner, so there's a sense in which it's a prison, right? But God is so powerfully at work that he's given maximum freedom. And I could just imagine all of the, the talking that's going on in the barracks. Ooh, you're assigned to Paul today. He's going to talk your head off. Watch out that he doesn't convert you, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's tough to be a soldier chained to the apostle Paul, you know. Paul's got a captive audience. But I think more likely than not, what is happening is there's more and more talk amongst Christians as soldier after soldier becomes Christian and they have an influence themselves throughout the Praetorian Guard and throughout Caesar's household because there were people in Caesar's household that became Christian. We looked at that uh, earlier. Now let me just apply this. We've got an incredibly great God and we need to apply it to ourselves. You may be in your own prison house right now. It may be a prison of financial ruin. It may be a prison uh, where you've got so many responsibilities you cannot wrap your arms around them and you just feel helpless. It may be a prison of being you know, in a relationship that, that's really hard to be in. It's not a great relationship. Whatever your prison might be, ask God to be in it. See, when God is in those relationships, in your prison... You have all of the liberty that God wants you to have. may not be as much liberty as Paul had, but you will have all the liberty you need to have 
to be able to serve God effectively and joyfully. Uh, with God in prison, you can find yourself communing with Him, learning to trust Him, learning how to delight in God even when everything is frustrating around you, saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to be interested to see what you've got coming out of this. But it's going to cause you, it's going to force you to grow in your relationship with Him. You'll either become better in Christ or you'll become bitter. But these are opportunities to grow. So when you've had all kinds of negative things happening to you, don't give up. See them as God's prison house for you and say, Lord, thank you that you can be even in the prison. If you've started feeling sorry for yourself lately, take these four P's seriously. Realize it's a loving God who has ruined your plans, who has slowed down your plans, or is making the plans rush so quickly that you're, you're frightened to death about them. He is in the places you visit. Okay? He is in the people thrown into your life. He is in your prison directing your steps. We have people in this church who are hurting and who have been struggling over every one of these peas. Their plans just seem to be going upside down, and it's frustrating to them. And I think we can be an encouragement as a church as, as we minister into their lives. In fact, I would encourage some of you, if you feel led, to, to go into a time of prayer and fasting for some of the people in our congregation who are facing incredible financial strain. Uh, hopefully they won't be embarrassed that I mention this, but uh, I, I want us to be in prayer and fasting for uh, Ron Porter and his family and all the things. And, and we've got the Stugards and we've got the Kruitzes and we've got, uh, you know, we've got all kinds of people who are struggling financially. Some of them we may not even know about because they've not told us and they don't want to be ministered to. But hopefully God through this sermon and through other acts of love from our congregation will say, you know, we need to be open and honest with each other. We're a body. We love each other. We want to care for each other. We want to figure out, is there anything God wants us to do to bless and build up? And so we need to be a place. We need to be a place of God's grace. We need to be a people of blessing. And we need to be a reminder in each other's lives that, hey, God's presence is there. He's there even in the prison. And may the Lord receive all of the glory through the, the outcomes from our putting this sermon into practice. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for the privilege that we have of serving you in the storm, of serving you in the times where we almost feel like it's a time out, and yet you open up new ministries of opportunity. Thank you, Father, for trusting us with times of loss even as you trusted Job and thank you for the times where you reward us with double everything that has been taken from us father we want to have stewards hearts we want to have hearts like these Roman Christians that came out to bless Paul and that we want to be blessings in each other's lives we don't want to be thorns in the flesh of each other we don't want to be a constant drip uh, we want father instead to be such a blessing that uh, we have the fragrance of Christ about us, bringing joy, bringing grace, bringing the gospel reality into the lives of every man, woman, and child in this congregation. Make it so, O oh God, by the power of Your grace. In ourselves, we'd act just like the, the people in Jerusalem acted. 
But Father, we want uh, to have the riches of the grace that was manifested in these Roman Christians, manifested in each of us. Do it for Your glory. Do it for the sake of Your Son. Bring revival. Bring reformation into our lives and into the lives of churches throughout this nation. Father, there's so many churches that are struggling. So many people in leadership positions who are disheartened and feeling like giving up. And I pray that You would bring... Uh, people like these Roman Christians into their lives, surrounding them, encouraging them, lifting them up. Uh, Father, may the bride of Jesus Christ as a whole uh, hang together, stick together, pray for one another. And yes, Father, bringing correction just as Paul did, but doing it with praise on our lips, with encouragement on our lips. Teach us the balance, Father, that only Your Spirit can enable us to have. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.